All right, so grab those Bibles if you got them and turn with me to the Gospel of John. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, and you'd like one to follow along with, you can just raise your hand. One of our FIT team members will get one to you. But we're going to be in the book of John again. So for almost a year and a half now, we have been walking together uh, section by section through the Gospel of John. I hope that you guys have been as blessed by the study as I have. I know I've been, I've been blessed through our time. Um, but we, uh, are, since day one of this study, our goal has been the same. Since, since day one, our goal has been this, to discover the identity and the mission of Jesus Christ. Okay, to, to clearly and definitively understand uh, who Jesus is and what he accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection. Okay, so that's, that's been our goal. And what we found, or at least what I've uh, seemed to find, uh, is, is John 18, where we are today and where we've been, where we were last week, uh, have been a tremendous resource in being able to answer that very question. Who is Jesus and what did he accomplish? So if you're here with us last week, we looked at the first 11 verses of John chapter 18. An amazing passage of scripture really opened our eyes to see, again, who Jesus is and what he has come to do. Um, so in the first 11 verses of, of John 18, this is what we saw. On the night that Jesus is betrayed, he takes his disciples across the brook Kidron and, and into the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's here where Judas, the betrayer of Jesus, brings out a detachment of armed Roman soldiers uh, into the garden where they're going to come and they're going to arrest Jesus. And we get this great picture. This, everything seems to come crashing down, right? Jesus is about to be arrested. Everything's going to come to a halt seemingly, right, from the outside looking in. We see this great picture of the authority and the power of Jesus Christ. Hundreds of Roman soldiers are bearing down on Jesus now and his disciples. Judas, his betrayer, is standing there. We're told in John 13 that Judas is literally possessed by Satan himself, okay? They're, they're bearing down on Jesus, And in this moment of just uh, uh, stark (laughs) clarity as to to who Jesus is, with a word of his mouth, he flattens them. It's amazing. It's this amazing picture that we get, right? Hundreds of imperial troops are coming against Jesus. And and, and with a word from this mild-mannered, meek carpenter, you know, to whom children love to to come and run and play with and sit on his lap, a word from this mild-mannered carpenter literally makes the knees buckle of these soldiers and they fall backwards, right? Because for this, for this glimpse, just for this, for this brief moment, Jesus has shown who he is. He's given us a glimpse of his glory. He's taken the divine name upon his lips for a brief moment. We see who Jesus is without any, any, without any hiddenness, without any, any secrecy. Jesus reveals who he is and he flattens them. It's this amazing, amazing picture. And then when the, when the soldiers and Judas, they regain their composure and they stand back up, Jesus basically hands himself over. He hands himself over because that was the plan all along. But even as he does so, even as he's allowing himself to be bound up and arrested by these soldiers, he says, I'll let you take me because that's the plan. I'll let you take me, but you're not allowed to take the other disciples. I love that. Jesus, the one getting arrested, is the one giving the orders. And what's amazing is that they obey him. Right? That we said that the, the, most likely the reason why there were hundreds of soldiers out there that night was not just for this one guy, but probably in case there were those around him, some adoring crowd, some rabble around him that was going to fight back. Right? And, and they did. Peter whipped out a sword and took the ear off a guy. But Jesus says, I'll give you permission to take me, but you can't take any of them, even Peter. And the soldiers obey him. They say, okay. <laughs> and they, they arrest Jesus, but the, but the disciples are not taken. Jesus shows in this amazing picture at every moment, every step of the way, he's in charge and he is good. That's what we said last week, right? Jesus is in charge and Jesus is good. Even in the darkest of nights, when everything seems to come crashing down, when evil seems to be having its day, 
Jesus is in charge, and Jesus is good. And, and what we said last week was that if that's true of that night, that of course is going to be true of our dark nights and our dark days and our dark seasons. When everything seems to come crashing down around us, when evil seems to be winning the day, when it's the hour of darkness, we can trust, we can know that Jesus is good and that Jesus is still in charge. And often it seems like that the darker the night becomes, in fact, the brighter the light of Christ shines. The darker the night becomes, the brighter the light of Christ shines. It's kind of like a jeweler displaying you know, their beautiful diamonds, right? The reason why a jeweler takes their beautiful precious stones and puts them up against the dark black cloth is so that you can fully see and fully appreciate the beauty and the brilliance and the intricacies of these, of these precious stones. And that's what we're seeing John do for us in John 18, He's casting the brilliance and the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ against the darkness, against the blackness of our world. And we're able to see in John 18 more clearly than ever just how brilliant, how beautiful, how glorious Jesus is. This is what he's done in the first 11 verses. That's what he's going to continue to do in these next 15 that we're going to study this morning. In these next 15 verses, we're going to see corruption, violence, lies, betrayal, deceit, but, but in the midst of it all, amongst it all, we're going to see Jesus standing there towering in authority and power and goodness and truth. And, and as I was studying this passage this last week, there was just this one singular truth that kept ringing out to me. When we are weak, Jesus is strong. When we are weak, Jesus is strong. And the, 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 as, as dark as night gets, the light, of the, Christ, the light of Christ will shine. When we are weak, Jesus is strong. And so let's go to the text together and let's see how this uh, fleshes out. Starting in verse 12, John 18, verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and they bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. And so the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. That's Peter speaking. Peter the disciple. He said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. And they were standing there and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, then why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. And so they said to him, You also are not one of the disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once, a rooster crowed. I told you, this is, a, this is John casting 
the, the light of Christ against the darkness of our world, casting the strength of Jesus against our weakness. This is the story of contrasts. There's a whole bunch of contrasts in here. I'm only going to have time to point out two this morning. But the, these are the two I want to point out. Okay, the first is the contrast between the two high priests, and the, the second is a contrast between two trials that are happening this night. The first, a contrast between the two high priests that are in our story. In verse 13, it says that the soldiers take Jesus to the house of Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who's serving as the high priest that year. So when I first really started studying this passage this last Tuesday, um, that was the first question that went through my mind was, Okay, they just took Jesus to Annas, who was the father-in-law of the high priest Caiaphas that year. Why would they do that? Why wouldn't they take him directly to Caiaphas, the high priest? And so I started doing some research. I started studying, who is this Annas guy and why was he so important? Well, here's the deal. Annas had been the high priest at one point. You know, years earlier, Annas had been the high priest, and, and apparently he's still the one calling the shots. From what I studied this week, the high priestly system by Jesus' day had gotten completely corrupt. Back when God initially set up the high priestly order, um, it, it, it looked very, very different. Uh, it, for, for one thing, it was a life term. When you became the high priest, you were the high priest until you died. Okay? But when you know, all these foreign oppressors came in, they changed a lot of the Jewish structure. And so um, you, the high priest served short terms. And it, it kind of went from being this you know, uh, uh, position of highly you know, uh, religious significance to more of a political position. Basically, if you were going to become the high priest, you basically had to get in bed with the Roman Empire. You had to be able to be incredibly friendly with the Roman Empire. It was more of a political uh, position than anything. Um, so Annas... Uh, I, I started learning. There's, a lot, there's lots of stuff in Jewish history about this guy, Annas, and his family. Annas, I, I learned, basically bought and bullied his way into his role as high priest. Um, and and uh, not only did he buy and, and kind of bully his way in, but then he did the same thing for his eldest son, and then his next son, and then the next son after that. Five sons total served as high priest under, so they kind of kept it in the family, and now he ran out of sons. Now Caiaphas, his son-in-law, is serving as the high priest. The Jewish community hated this family, Annas and his family. There's, um, I meant to bring some of the, the, the quotes with me that I read in some of the Jewish historical documents, but I, but I left them in the office. But just trust me, they just hated this family. Why? Because, number one, they were far too friendly with the Romans. Uh, number two, again, they were, they were bullies. They bought their way into their position. But third, because they were running basically a racketing scam at the temple. Okay, they, they were basically taking the systems of worship that God set up in the Old Testament and they were using them to get rich, using them to make money. And here's how they did it. Um, back in the Old Covenant, back in the Old Testament, when, when uh, uh, God initially set up the systems of worship and systems of sacrifices, he said this. He said, when you, if you want to worship, you bring in an animal to be sacrificed, but the animal that you bring in must be blemish-free. Okay, it cannot have spots on it. And so the way that they protected against that was they had inspectors in the temple who would actually look over the animals before they would offer them as sacrifices. Guess who controlled the inspectors? The high priest. Right? The high priest is the one that controlled the inspectors. Uh, and so if the inspector said, nope, you know what, this, this animal that you're bringing in from outside the temple, if this, an, this animal doesn't quite make the cut, it's got too many blemishes on it. If you can't bring in an animal from outside the temple, where are you going to have to get an animal to sacrifice? In the temple, inside the temple, in the temple courtyard marketplace. Who controls the marketplace? The high priest. So not only did, did, did these, if you wanted to come in and offer a sacrifice of worship to God, did you have to buy from the high priest's salesmen, basically, but they exponentially hiked up the prices. All right? So this, this high priest was getting rich off of basically scamming, you know, and, and kind of rigging the system, if you will. You follow me? 
Okay, it, it's absolutely corrupt. If you wanted to come in and offer a worship, you know, a, a sacrifice of worship to the Lord, basically you got swindled out of your money. And the Jewish community absolutely hated these guys. Um, the, the more that I started studying Annas, I realized this is more like John Gotti than, than the high priest. This is kind of a godfather figure, right? He's one calling the shots. It's been all in his family for years and years. Basically this racketing operation. Annas is the epitome of corruption. And as you can imagine, um, Jesus was not thrilled at this. If, if you remember, just days before Jesus' betrayal and his arrest, Jesus had, had walked into the temple. He had strode into the temple with fire in his eyes and a whip in his hand. And he went in and he drove out the moneylenders and he drove out the sellers in the temple courtyard marketplace. Drove them all out, basically saying, you know, this was supposed to be a house of prayer for many nations. You've made turn it into a den of robbers. Basically, Jesus goes in and raids Annas' whole operation. And as you can imagine, Annas wasn't too thrilled about that. I didn't sit well with him. And I think that that's at least part of the reason why Jesus is brought directly to Annas. Jesus is bound by his, his officers and by the Roman officers, and he's brought into Annas, and the corruption continues. For one thing, Jesus is put on trial in the middle of the night. We've said this before, that that was against Jewish law. Second thing we read is in verse 19, it says, The high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. That, too, is against Jewish law. You know, you're not, you're not allowed, prosecutors in that day were not allowed to ask the defendant themselves uh, questions that could incriminate them. If they were going to be found guilty, it had to be from a third party. Some witness, outside witness, had to come and testify about what that person did. They couldn't try to trick the person into incriminating themselves. But that's exactly what the high priest is doing here. Which is, by by the way, the reason why Jesus answers the way that he does. Jesus basically says, everything I've said is in public. If you want to go find witnesses, there are plenty around. Go bring in a witness. Basically, Jesus is pointing out the corruption of the whole process. The corruption of the whole night. He's pointing out the corruption of the high priest. And then one of the officers, when Jesus says this, strikes Jesus, punches him. And then Jesus says again, basically, if what I've said was wrong, then bring in an outside witness and and say what I've said was wrong. He does it again. He points out the corruption of the whole process. And I think this is what John's trying to do, too. He's pointing out the corruption of it all, pointing out the corruption of the night. Annas is the epitome of everything that's wrong with the world. He's the corrupt politician, he's the swindling televangelist, and he's the the gangster all wrapped up into one. And, to boot, he's the high priest. That's that's their high priest. He's the one that was was put into place to act as a mediator for their people, for the people, uh, between the people and God. He's the one who was set in place to, to act as a bridge, to be able to help people to have a right relationship with God. That's their guy. Can you imagine how hopeless the Jewish people must have felt? That's our guy? That's the one who's responsible for helping us be able to get to God? Annas? But there was another high priest standing in that room that night, wasn't there? There was another high priest in that room that night, a true high priest, the great high priest. And the contrast between Annas and Jesus could not be greater because Jesus didn't use his position for power or for riches or or even to to gain greater position. He wasn't concerned about self-promotion or even self-preservation. He didn't use his position for power or riches. He laid down his power and his riches to take up his role. He wasn't concerned about self-promotion. The only thing he was concerned about that night was self-sacrifice. For the sake of the world, for your sake, for my sake, and for the glory of God. 
Jesus was the true high priest. Jesus' purity stands in sharp contrast to the corruption of Annas. Annas was weak. Jesus was strong. Annas failed. Jesus was victorious. Jesus is the true high priest that brought atonement for sins, reconciliation to God once and for all. Hebrews 10, it says this, It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, our high priest, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Praise God. He's the high priest. The first thing we notice is the sharp contrast between Jesus and Annas, the two high priests of that night, the high priest of earth and the high priest of heaven. The second contrast John gives us is between two trials that night. Um, Two trials. This passage was a little bit tricky for me to study uh, this last week, um, especially the first couple of days of studying because as I was reading it, uh, I was thinking, man, John is all over the place as he's writing this. Um, he's, he's all over the place. So he starts with Jesus being arrested in, in the garden and taken to Annas to be questioned. And then he jumps over to Peter, who you know, is brought into the courtyard and starts to be questioned by the servant girl. And then he jumps back to Jesus being questioned by Annas. And then he jumps back to Peter being questioned again. And I thought, man, like, John, just pick something so I can stick, you know, I can get some kind of structure here, right? Stick with the spot. And then it occurred to me that I realized he's doing it on purpose, John was doing this, this very thing on purpose, the back and forth, back and forth. What he's doing is he's trying to help us contrast these two events, these two situations. He, he's purposefully paralleling these two things. There are two men being questioned that night. There are two men being questioned. There are two trials happening that night. Two men are called to testify that night. You know what, you know what it means to testify? The, the Greek word for testify is the word martyr. To testify basically means to, de- to declare truth, even if it's going to cost you something. And, and so the contrast between the, how these two men testified was, was very, very different, wasn't it? To, to declare the truth, even if it might cost you something. This is the point of contrast. Peter caved. Peter cowered. Peter fell. Peter broke. Um... I learned this week that, that the word integrity, which is what Peter lost that night, the, the word integrity um, comes from the same uh, root word as uh, integer. Miriam, you're a math teacher. You know what integer is, right? Anybody else remember what an integer is? All right. Our, our students do. That's great. I, we forgot. Um, an integer in mathematics is a whole number as opposed to a fraction. It's a whole number as opposed to a fraction. And that's what integrity means. When you lose your integrity, you lose your wholeness. The other gospel writers actually tell us that, um, that when Peter denies Jesus for the third time, uh, that he, and, and then the rooster crows and then it hits Peter what he's just done, like the, the severity of what he's just done, it says that he breaks down and weeps. And he doesn't just weep, he breaks down and weeps. He's lost his wholeness. He's breaking down. He's a fraction of a man. 
And I can tell you, I, I'll tell you from personal experience, um, that's exactly what it feels like. When you lose your integrity, that's exactly what it feels like. It feels like you're falling apart inside. It feels like you're disintegrating. It feels like you come crumbling down. And for me, from my personal experience, in my case, I was testifying to Jesus with my mouth. I was a witness to Jesus with my mouth. I would say Jesus is Lord with my lips, but I was absolutely denying him with the way I lived my life. Right, so I, I declared my affiliation. I, I was, I mean, I was, I'm in ministry, right? I was doing it with, I had a microphone in front of my face, you know, seven, eight times a week for thousands of people declaring Jesus is Lord, but then I'd go home and I'd live as if I had no affiliation with him at all. I denied him with my life. I am Peter. I read this and that's me. I'm the one sitting by that charcoal fire that night d- denying Jesus. That's me. I'm Peter. Is there any other Peters in this room? Here's what's important for us to understand this morning. It's easy for us to look at a guy like Annas and shake our heads at him and say, that's what's wrong with our world today. Guys like that. That's what's wrong with our world today. Corrupt politicians, scheming televangelists, taking advantage of people, taking their money. It's the Bernie Madoffs of our world. Right? I, 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 read, I read this week about a, a senator from Jersey who is being accused, and he hasn't been found guilty, so I'm not trying to defame the guy's character. He's being accused of this. He's being accused of... Um, basically throwing his weight around with Medicare to try to help his buddy, who's a doctor friend of his, uh, make a bunch of money, millions of dollars. And in return, his, his doctor friend of his is helping, you know, throwing a bunch of money toward his campaign. And not only that, uh, but, but paying for a bunch of underage prostitutes all over the world for him. And you read that, and it, and it makes you sick to your stomach. You know what I mean? Just shake your head. I just, you, get, you get a sick feeling when you read something like that. That's what's wrong with, with, with uh, the world that we live in. It's people like that that are destroying our world. And, and, as, and as I'm thinking these things in my mind as I'm reading this, I, I got pretty convicted. Because I, well, even as I was reading that and I, I got that feeling, I started thinking, I, I still don't get John 18 yet. I, it still hasn't sunk into me yet. Because the corruption and the deceit and the betrayal and, and the lie, it's not just coming from Annas, the worst of the worst. It's also coming from Peter, the best of the best. You see? It's not just the Annas of the world. It's the Peters of the world. Peter is the best of the, he's the leader of leaders. Peter is the head of disciples. Uh, Peter's name literally means rock. Jesus gave him that name. Petra, that means rock. Because Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church. Je- Jesus himself called Peter into ministry and said, I'm gonna, you're going to lead the church, the early church. Right? Peter is, is the best of the best. Peter had, had greater spiritual experiences than you and I could ever dream of. Peter was a part of Jesus' inner circle. Peter was on the mount when Jesus was transfigured in all of his glory. Right? Peter heard all the sermons. Peter had all the quiet times with Jesus. Right? Literally, face-to-face with Jesus. Right? Peter saw the miracles. Peter did the miracles. Peter was out casting out demons. Peter was out sharing the gospel. Many people probably placed their faith in Jesus because of Peter, even before this point. Peter did these unbelievable things. Peter was the guy out walking on the water. Peter did these unbelievable things. And yet, you can have the, you know, the best small group experience which Peter had, right? Ever. You can have the best accountability structure like, like Peter had, right? Better than any of us could ever dream of. And yet, the best of the best fell like the worst of the worst. Peter 
as high up as he was and as great of experience as he was and as great of accountability as he had, fell in the same way that Annas fell, fell in the same way that Judas fell. In fact, we know that by the, by the third denial of Jesus, we don't know this from the John account, but all four gospel writers talk about this one story. We know that by the third denial, Peter had started calling down curses. You know, he was so emphatic that he had nothing to do with Jesus, he started calling down curses. And a lot of the translators in the past have said that Peter's calling down curses on himself, but actually, uh, as scholarship has continued, um, they're actually thinking that maybe the, the, way, the closer reading of the, of the Greek maybe, may mean that he's actually calling down curses on Jesus. He's actually cursing Jesus. I mean, this is a terrible, horrible, horrific betrayal. Peter, the best of the best, was unable to maintain his integrity, his wholeness. He fell apart. He broke. So you know what that told me this week? Be careful at just pointing out the fingers, uh, point, pointing my fingers out at, at people like uh, this senator from Jersey and Bernie Madoffs. Be careful at just pointing out the weakness of others before you know, first recognizing the weakness in your own heart. It's not just those out there that need grace. It starts right here. Peter was every bit as capable of correct corruption and deceit and betrayal as Annas and as Judas himself. I was reading a, a review this week of a, um, a book about the um, manhunt and the capture of a guy named Adolf Eichmann. Adolf Eichmann was one of the leaders of, in the Nazi regime, and um, he was one of the uh, architects for the final solution, right? The, the killing of millions of Jews back in World War II. And, uh, you know, after World War II, he went into hiding. It took years to, to find this guy. And the, the book was written by the guy who led the manhunt. And so um, something that he said about Eichmann really struck me. He said that when they finally found him, I think it was in Argentina, um, where, they, where they finally found him. Um, when they found him, they wanted to make sure that they could extract him, that they could actually capture him. They didn't want to lose him again. And so what they did was they just watched him for a little bit. They kind of learned his routine. They watched him walk up and down the streets and where he went to go get coffee and where, what, where he shopped and what time he went to bed and all the rest of it. And something that, that this, the, the leader of this manhunt said really struck me. He basically said, I never, ever, ever would have picked this guy out in a crowd. I, he, I never would have in a, in a million years picked him out of the thousands that walk up and down the streets as a guy who would be capable of the, you know, the mass murder of millions of people. He said, because he basically looks like every man. Actually, what he said was, he is every man. They, they finally did capture Eichmann. They put him on trial. And one of the Holocaust survivors were actually in, you know, watching that trial. And there was somebody who had asked the Holocaust survivor, what do you feel when you see this guy up there? You know, what's going through your heart and mind right now? What kind of emotion? Is it hatred? Is it horror? Is it loathing? Is it disgust? What is it? And the guy basically said, sorrow. As he, as he sees Eichmann sitting up there, he said, I feel sorry because I'm, I'm recognizing that the same sin that lives in his heart also lives in my heart. That, that the, the wickedness that lives in his heart that could make him capable of doing such evil like that also lives in my heart. And I think He's right. All have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. There is none who does good. No, not even one. There is none righteous. There are none who seek after God. That's what the scriptures say from beginning to end. And I think it's true. I mean, call, call you know, evil evil. What Eichmann did was absolutely evil. But the point is, is that I'm every bit as evil as Adolf Eichmann. I am every bit as capable of, of the treachery and the wickedness that Adolf Eichmann. And frankly, I think you are too. Our heart is every bit as depraved. 
It's not just the corrupt politicians. It's not just the Bernie Madoffs. It's not just the Adolf Eichmanns who are in need of a Savior. Jesus didn't just come for Annas. He came for Peter. It's guys like Peter and it's people like you and me that need a Savior. The good news, though, is that the Savior's come. The Savior has come. Peter was weak, but Jesus was strong. And, Pe- and Jesus wasn't, let me, let me clear, Jesus wasn't just strong for the sake of being strong. He wasn't just flexing his muscles in a mirror. He wasn't just showing off. Peter, Peter was weak, but Jesus was strong for Peter. We are weak, but Jesus is strong for us and for the glory of God. Earlier that night, Peter had made a promise. As they're sitting in that upper room, Jesus predicted his betrayal. He, he said, Some, one of you is going to betray me. And they all went around and said, no, no, it's not going to be me. It's not going to be me. And it comes to Peter, and Peter said, even if everybody else denies you, I will never betray you. I would never betray you. And, and Jesus looked Peter in the eye and said, before the rooster crows, before the cock crows, three times you'll deny me. Peter says, never would I do that. Never would I betray you. But when push came to shove, once, twice, three times, starts calling curses down on Jesus. I have nothing to do with that man. Don't even know him. Peter broke his promise. But when Peter was weak, Jesus was strong. Peter was a promise breaker. Jesus is a promise keeper. Amen? Jesus made a promise that night too. Jesus told his father as he was praying in the garden, he said, not my will be done, but your will be done. Thy will be done. I'll drink that cup. I'll drink that cup of wrath. I'll take the justice for their sins. I'll take justice for the sins of the world. Jesus, keeping that promise, meant that Jesus was going to be, was going to be sent to the cross. And here's the paradox of it all. Jesus, keeping his promise, meant that he was going to be treated as a promise breaker. As if he had broken his promise. Jesus being treated as a promise keeper meant that he will be treated as the promise breaker. He who knew no sin became sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If, you're, uh, if you've been following along in our Bible reading plan that we're, we're reading each day, um, we just read through Leviticus last week. And about halfway through Leviticus, um, you read about this, this interesting uh, system that God set up. Once a year, the people of Israel were to do something about the fact that they broke, you know, they broke their promises all year long. They had made a promise. They had made a covenant with God. We're going to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But they failed, right? We're going to love our neighbor as ourselves. But they failed, Right? Each and every day they were, they were breaking that promise over and over and over and over again. And so once a year, the Israelites would, would do something about that. It was called the Day of Atonement. So the high priest would come out and they'd get this live goat that would come to them. And the, the high priest would lay his hands on the head of that live goat. And he would confess all of the wickedness and rebelliousness and all of the promise breaking of the Israelites on that live goat. Basically placing the sins on that goat. And then they would send that goat out of the city. Out into the wilderness. Out into the desert. Away from the city. Why? Because the goat was basically had become the promise breaker, right? He became the substitute for the people. In Leviticus it says, the goat will carry on itself all their sins to a solitary place. The goat was being treated as the promise breaker because promise breakers are separated from God. That's, that's the wages of our sin. It's, it's death. Separation from God. That's what Isaiah says as well. Separation from God. They're cast out. That's why when Jesus was on the cross and he was being treated as the promised baker, he cried out that he was felt forsaken by God. He was forsaken. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 13 actually says that it's no, it's no coincidence. It's no accident where Jesus was crucified. He was crucified outside of the city. He was brought out of the city. And as our sins were placed on him, And he was treated as the promise breaker. 
Jesus Christ, being our promise keeper, was willing to go to the cross and be our scapegoat. Our sins were placed on him. He took them away. He drank the cup. Peter broke his promise. Jesus kept his. Peter fell. Jesus stood firm. Peter was weak. Jesus was strong. Jesus was strong for Peter. And he's strong for you and me. So what does that mean for us? What do we do with this? Well, for one thing, I, I, think, I think John is making very clear that it's not just Jesus who stands on trial. You don't have to be in a courtroom to stand on trial, do you? I think what he's showing us is that, you know, like Peter was on trial. Ordinary, everyday life, we stand on trial. And we're called to testify. We're called to act as a witness. And so the question is, is will we testify for truth? Will we, are, are we willing to declare the truth even if it might cost us something? And remember, we don't just declare truth with our mouths. We declare truth with the way that we live. Are we willing to declare our affiliation, show our affiliation with Jesus, declare Jesus as Lord, not just with our lips, but the way that we live, even if it might cost us our jobs or our reputations or our friendships, even our very life? Will you stand for truth? That's the first thing I think that John wants us to see is that each and every day, today when you go home this afternoon, we will be called to testify. But the second thing that I think John wants us to see is, is the answer to that. And the question, and the answer is no. Will we be able to testify? Will, will we always declare the truth even if it's going to cost us something? The answer is no, not always. That we will fail if ultimately the, 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 you know, we're the one you know, called to, to, to be tested. Our integrity, our faithfulness, the, the answer is no, we won't. If Peter, the best of the best, will, you know, falls, we're going to fall. We're going to fail. We're going to make mistakes. But the good news, friends is that although I break my promises sometimes, Jesus kept his promise. That my, my wholeness is no longer dependent upon whether or not I keep my integrity. My, my, my wholeness is no longer dependent upon whether or not I am faithful. Jesus was the promise keeper for me. When I am faithless, he is faithful. When I am weak, he is strong. And, and don't, don't think for a second. I've, sometimes I have people come up to me and say, well, you, you, you make it sound like we just don't have to try. Like, it doesn't matter how we live. Let's just, let's just continue to sin that, that grace might increase. Right? That's not what I'm saying at all. Read Romans 6 if you think that's what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying at all. But here's the paradox. Here's the paradox of it all. If you want to become a promise keeper, you must first admit that you're a promise breaker and put your, put your faith in the one who does keep his promises. You follow me? Okay. If you want to grow in faithfulness, you must first admit that you are faithless and put your faith in the one who is faithful. If you want to become strong, you must first admit that you are weak and put your faith in the one who is strong. That's how you can become strong. And actually, that's what we see Jesus leading Peter into at the very end of this book. We'll close with this. Um, I, I want to make sure that, that we tie all the loose ends. I don't want to just leave Peter hanging out there by himself as a denier, betrayer. All right, let, let's just let's skip over to John 21 and let's just see how this resolves. Um, after Jesus goes to the cross and he dies and, and he rises again from the dead, he shows himself multiple times to the disciples, and one of those times that he does that, he's sitting out uh, on, on the beach, and, and the disciples are out fishing in the boat, and when Peter, who was in the boat fishing, recognizes that it's Jesus on the shore, he jumps into the water, doesn't wait to row the boat, you know, paddle the boat into the shore, he jumps into the water with his clothes on, swims to the shore, and guess where he finds Jesus? He finds him at a charcoal fire. Did you catch that in John 18? The, the second and third betrayal, where he's calling curses down, happens at a charcoal fire. He's warming himself. And now he gets to the beach and he sees Jesus by this fire. 
I, I was reading a commentary by this guy named N.T. Wright, and he pointed out, he said, isn't it so funny how God, <laughs> God does this a lot? Um, you know, when we have, we've got these defining moments in your life, sometimes, you know, maybe it's a, you know, the first time you saw your wife or whatever it is, and, and there's like a song playing in the background or like there's a certain scented candle that's going or she's wearing a certain perfume or whatever, right? Uh, there's just something like when you hear that song again years down the road, like everything just comes kind of flooding back to you. All of those that memories just come rushing back in. Um, look at what Jesus is doing. Basically, he set up the scene again for Peter. He set up the scene again for him. And so you know that when, when Peter comes up to him and he sees that charcoal fire there and he sees Jesus sitting at the charcoal fire and he smells the charcoal being burned and he sees the fire, you know that this, all of it came rushing back to him. Everything came rushing back. And this is so often how God works. To heal us, sometimes he needs to reopen the wound and cleanse, cleanse it, clean it, clean it up. Sometimes he's got to remove whatever raggedy bandage we've tried to cover it up with, try to, try to heal it with. We've got to remove that bandage and clean it, and it's going to sting, and it's going to hurt, and it's going to be hard. But if you want to be healed, that's what he's got to do. So he, makes, he basically puts Peter's sin right in his face, and he makes him smell it and hear it and, and feel it. And this is what Jesus does. He, you know, Peter recognizes that Jesus knows every, basically every aspect of, of uh, the betrayal. Three times Jesus asks Peter a question. Three times, one for every denial. And he basically says, do you love me? But what he actually says is, do you agape me, which is the unconditional love, right? So do you, so do you love me unconditionally? Do you love me no matter what it costs you? And actually what he says the first time, he says, do you agape me more than these? Some of the other disciples. Do you agape? Do you, do you un- so do you really love me no matter what it costs more than all of these? Are you really any better in your devotion than any one of these? And you know how P- Peter responds? He says, Lord, you know I love you. But he doesn't use the agape love. He uses the other love, the conditional love. So basically he's saying, you're right, I haven't loved you conditionally or unconditionally. Basically, he's humbling him. Peter, Peter's recognizing, you're right, I'm no better than any of these guys. I have loved you conditionally. He humbles him. He reopens the wound. He brings back to his mind what happened the night, makes him come face to face with his darkest moment. So imagine, imagine, you know, not only the pain of what, what Peter must be feeling in this moment, but, but the beauty of it when Jesus brings him face to face and basically re, you know, orchestrates this scene and then, but puts himself in the scene and then looks at Peter and says, basically, I forgive you. And I'm going to use you. You know, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. I'm going to make you great for the glory of my name. Put, put yourself in Peter's shoes. What's your charcoal fire? Would you be willing to think for a moment, kind of take a step back and think, what, what is my darkest, most shame-filled moment? This, this thing that I try to keep, you know, locked up inside in the deepest, darkest recesses of my heart. You know, could you picture that in your mind? And could you put Jesus right in the center of that scene? And can you imagine him just looking across you and saying, I forgive you for this. And I'm going to use you. I know what you've done, but I'm still going to use you. And I'm going to make you great for the glory of my name. That's what I believe he wants to do here this morning. So we're going to sing just a couple more songs. I'm going to ask the band to come on up. I want to encourage you this morning as we sing a couple more songs to take a few moments 
And let's just, let's just spend some time contemplating. Let's spend some time meditating on the goodness and the forgiveness and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. What, would you just be willing to, you know, maybe, maybe there is something deep down in your heart, some kind of junk that you've kind of held down there. Would you let Jesus invade that deepest, darkest recess of your heart? Would you confess that sin to him, repent of that sin, and would you ask Jesus to forgive you of your sin? He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins if we would confess it to him. my, My prayer all week has been this, that there would be some healing that would happen this morning. That, 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 that people would no longer be defined by these certain sins and they'll no longer be held down, weighed down by these things, no longer be fractured, no longer be broken and crumbling down, but would find wholeness in, in the love and the mercy of Jesus Christ. So, so as, we, as we sing a couple songs, let's just take some time and let's, let's confess our sins to the Lord. And by the way, in addition to that, I just feel like I need to say this. Um, oftentimes, to find healing, um, we're, we're not only to confess our sins to the Lord, but we're also to confess our sins one to another. That's what it says in James. Confess your sins one to another so that you may be healed. If, if um, we have little ears here this morning, if there are some unhealthy relationships in your life right now, I'll say it like that. For example, and, and, and you need to talk to your spouse about some of these unhealthy relationships. Um, you not only need to confess it to the Lord, you need to confess it to your wife or to your husband. If there are some things happening, if, if perhaps your eyes are seeing some things throughout the week that they should not be seeing, and, and you're basically living in, in unfaithfulness to the one that you've committed yourself to be faithful to, you not only need to confess it to the Lord, but I believe you need to confess it to the one you're sinning against. You're sinning against the Lord, but you're also sinning against the one that you're living with. Okay, I, I can't answer the, the questions for you. I can only answer the questions from my heart. I know where I need to confess, and I know what I need to confess to. But I want to encourage you, perhaps today, this sun, Sunday afternoon, you may need to go home and have some hard conversations. But if you want to be healed, if you want to be free, if you want to be released from some of these things, if you want to live in, in, uh, in a God-honoring way, I would encourage you, confess your sins that you might find healing. Let's pray.